Good evening, I'm Sandra Jovcelovic. Welcome to you all this evening to the LSC and a special welcome to Professor Michael Cole who will deliver tonight uh, the third lecture of the Psychology as Social Science Public Lecture Series. Before I introduce uh, Professor Cole, let me just say a few words about the series. Psychology as uh, Social Science is a program of public lectures on the relations between psychology and the social sciences, hosted by the Institute of Social Psychology and generously supported by the LSE Deputy Director's uh, Discretionary Fund, the lectures aim to uh, draw attention to the potential and the necessity of integrating psychology in the larger intellectual program of the social sciences. It will bring together psychologists and other social scientists to reflect on how the disciplinary traditions of psychology have engaged with the social sciences and addressed topics that are central to both. They also seek emphasize the past, the present, and the future of psychology at LSC, uh, where from the mid-20th century onwards, the vision and the project of a societal psychology to shape. The series lectures are very impressive and signal well to the future of the series. Uh, we had Professor Michael Billick and Professor, Professor Nicholas Rose speaking in the Mikomas and Lent terms and following on tonight's lectures on the 21st of June, Professor Axel Honneth, the director of the Frankfurt Institute for Social Research, will be speaking on Freud's concept of the self and its relation to the freedom of the will. Uh, highlights for the next academic session include Professor Michael Tomazello and Professor Bruno Latour. So watch the space and keep an eye on the LSC uh, website where all the information is. Now, let me just say a few words about our speaker tonight, although he probably doesn't need any introduction. Michael Coe is Professor of Psychology and Communication at the University of California, San Diego, Director of the Laboratory of Comparative Human Cognition and Editor of Mind, Culture and Activity. Professor Coe is one of the world's most distinguished cultural psychologists, a leading interpreter and developer of Vygotsky's overall project for psychology, and the psychologist who, perhaps more than any other, defined the field and the scope of contemporary cultural psychology. His personal trajectory intersects with the history of cultural psychology, and it would be impossible to fully understand the field without looking at his work. He has very powerfully demonstrated the foundational role of culture, in human development and continues to work on the elaboration of mediational theory of mind. As a student of Alexander Luria in the early 60s, he, he crossed cultural, social, and political divides when to do so was unusual and risky. Uh, this desire, I think, to venture into new contexts, shake existing borders, and meet different authors has perhaps been uh, the deepest lesson uh, he gave uh, to all of us who are involved in cultural psychology. Uh, he has called our attention again and again to the need to make psychology a truly international science. 
a social and historical science. Has received so many honorary doctorates and awards that it would be impossible for me to list them all here. The last one last year was the American Psychological Association Award for Distinguished Contributions to the International Advancement of Psychology. His publications and books are equally too many to list, all part of what is now the canon of cultural psychology. We're tremendously honored that he is contributing to the series and delivering tonight's lecture on researching the potential of cultural and historical psychology. Please join me in giving him a very warm welcome. Uh, that's already a hard act to follow. So, um, I think, uh, first of all, it's a great pleasure to be back at the London School of Economics. I was here almost exactly 20 years ago uh, and uh, held, gave a seminar here when I was just beginning to try to come to grips with a number of the ideas that I'm going to be talking about tonight. And I'm Sorry that Rob Farr is feeling poorly and um, fondly remember our discussions at that time. A few of you here uh, are old enough to remember uh, what those discussions were like. I'm also uh, walking down here um, this evening looking for rain. I didn't find any on the way, unfortunately. I came from Southern California in hopes of rain, but... Um, I was thinking that it's almost exactly 50 years ago today that uh, my, my own mentor, Alexander Luria, following World War II, was allowed to leave the Soviet Union and to lecture abroad, and he came to London, where he lectured. Uh, and I would like to think that uh, he would feel... Um, He'd feel good about the fact that somebody was remembering the work that he did 50 years ago and hope that he would not be too disappointed in the ways in which I misremember what the topic is about. So I um, use the word researching, of course, self-consciously searching for the potential of cultural historical psychology, which is the name that many people give to the project that uh, Lev Vygotsky, Alexander Luria, Alexei Leontiev, their students, a lot of other people, gave to the program of research which started in the then Soviet Union in the mid-1920s. Um, and uh, it's I, in the part, part of the deal of remembering is that I took my memory, I put it into an electronic form, put it in my pocket when I left home, and I'm now opening it up again here, and we'll see what we can remember. So I'll start with a little bit of history. Uh, I think it's important that history is important, and that was one of the things that's always been characteristic of social psychology here at the London School of Economics, is that they could remember that fact. Um, and I'm starting kind of with the centenary of psychology's origins uh, habitually attributed to the founding of Wundt's laboratory in Leipzig. Michael Tomasello will come here and tell you all about psychology in Leipzig today. Uh, and um, 
It was discovered really simultaneously in a lot of reappraisals that went on. Centenaries are useful for that. People go back and look. Something about 100. So I, my first encounter with this actually was in the work of Stephen Toulmin, who wrote a book in which he argued that, uh, it was an article in a book in which he argued that people really needed to go back and look at Wundt's enterprise, uh, that they seemed to have lost half of it. Uh, these are all Englishmen here. Um, Douglas Price Williams wrote a, a paper in which he, for the first time that I'd seen in English, not a translation for, from German of vocal psychology into cultural psychology, it's been called a lot of other things from that, but in which uh, Price Williams, who did very important work in cross-cultural uh, psychology, talked about the cultural psychology, where Rob Farr was saying, we're going to have to reappraise what it was that was in Wundt's to psychology, where Gustav Jehoda, who at least is an honorary member or citizen of the United Kingdom, um, although he lives in that northern part, which seems to be trying to break away again, and is himself, of course, uh, from the continent, has written fabulous work uh, establishing something about the historical origins of psychology as uh, an academic enterprise. Um, and I take the common thread to be, I, this is a PowerPoint. There's a great thing you can get off of Google if you do something like Power, Gettysburg Address PowerPoint if you want to see how PowerPoint can be abused. I'm not planning to abuse, just read to you from what's here. But there was this basic split. I saw Sandra had this sort of little split on a piece of paper in her office when we were sitting in her office earlier of one who actually proposed that psychology was in principle two different sciences, which could not be reduced one to the other. So it was nature, I, my, I, my Russian's not bad, but my German is execrable. Uh, nature Wissenschaften and Geisteswissenschaften, a, a natural sciences and a spiritual or a cultural science, a natural science, that explanatory, one descriptive, one reducing to a physiological psychology, which is what one became famous for, one to Volker psychology, in which my famous spelling is left out an L, I can see one of which was generalizing or nomothetic, one of which it was, and this is now taking another sub-branch. You're going to hear about Freud and the self and society. Uh, all of this stuff is old. Um, it's ideographic or historical or trying to treat of the individual case, one of which is, in Jerome Brunner's terms, paradigmatic or logical, if you like, and the other narrative. So these are just a series of oppositions which are sitting there by my analysis for several hundred years in our own tradition. So Wundt is this textural point of reference. Um, and it turns out that Rob and I both wrote a book that sort of had to do with this topic that appeared in the same year. Um, where I'm, now I'm quoting, Volker psychology's problem relates to those mental products. We, we both quoted the same independent invention from the same source the same um, passages from Wundt. Problem relates to those mental products, this is the part I'm going to read, it's German, which are created by a community of human life and are therefore inexplicable in terms merely of individual consciousness since they presuppose the reciprocal action of many. Individual consciousness is wholly incapable of giving us a history of the development of human thought for it is conditioned by an earlier history concerning which it cannot of itself give us any knowledge. Sovant cautioned us. 
So there are a lot of responses, a big page full of responses to what to do about this problem if you're going to have two psychologies because, after all, where did psychology fit into the humane sciences that preceded it? Well, one, one response, which I take to be the typical American response up until the centenary of Wundt, and probably the typical American response today, is just to ignore it. Declare all of psychology reducible to physiological evolutionary phenomena and the hell with the rest. That's the, that's the core. Uh, Arnold Gazelle had this great expression. He said, you know, in, in referring to this problem, he said, the glove fits on the hand. The hand shapes the glove. The glove doesn't shape the hand. And that was a way of his saying how important cultural history was. It was as important to the nature of human nature as the glove fitting on the hand. You could ignore it uh, and just assume a phylogenetic heritage and focus on the specifically human. And to some extent, I think that's what a kind of Stalinist psychology did. Some Americans did the same. Some social psychologists do the same. You could recognize it, but you could bracket it. And you could say something like the following. I believe that everything important in psychology, this is actually, this is a quote from Edward Chase Tolman, who ran rats. And you would think of as a highly non-political figure, except that when I went to the University of California, he wasn't allowed to teach in the University of California because of his political views. Tolman Hall, the University of California, home to cognitive science and education, uh, is where I was teaching last week. But Tolman said the following. So he's going to recognize this, this problem, but bracket it. I believe that everything important in psychology, except perhaps such matters as the building up of a superego, that is everything save such matters as involve society and words, can be investigated in essence through the continued experimental and theoretical analysis of determiners of rat behavior at a choice point in a maze. Or you can seek a unifying approach. And this is what makes the Russians, I think, of special interest because this is the path that they tried to take in the 1920s and which a variety of people are trying to take today, including myself, and you can judge the outcome. So I understand that I'm speaking to a general audience uh, and that some of you have read more of what I've written than I can remember myself and maybe forced to take exams on it, and some of you have never heard of me and just happened to wander into the room. So I have to try and cover that sort of spread. Uh, so I put down these origins of Russian cultural historical psychology. First of all, they very explicitly took on the task of trying to create a unified psychology in the 1920s. They wanted to reject the idea that you had to do either or, one or the other. They drew very heavily on evolutionary theory. And by that I mean Mar I don't mean Marx, I mean Darwin. Uh, but they drew on Marxism. They drew on what I think I would refer to as German genetic field theory, French sociogenetic approaches, people like Genet, and since Sandra's sitting here, people like Durkheim and like Levi Brule. They drew on American pragmatism and were well read in the works of William James and John Dewey and in various Russian semiotic traditions where I could, people like, well, people like, uh, I'm blocking on it, Pachevnya and others, and if I mentioned their, their names, it wouldn't mean much to you, but uh, Saussure was considered a semiotician at the time, and they took a little bit different view than Saussure did, but semiotics was very important in a Russian cultural historical version of semiotics. 
And I think thirdly, I'm abstracting wildly here, that they forced, they felt forced to confront. They were forced to confront, and they didn't mind confronting the theory-practice divide as a practical political matter on the one hand, and as a matter of scientific principle on the other. In this case, their politics and their science coincided. So what, what might be their foundational principles? The first I take to be in this, and one can make up as long a list of foundational principles as you like. I pared this away as best I could. The first is the notion of mediation through artifacts, tools, signs, culture, but mediation. Luria wrote in the first article about these ideas in English in 1928 the use, that the use of artifacts not only radically change, change his, that is humans, conditions of existence, they even react back on them, humans, in that they affect a change in him and his psychic condition. I'm dealing with the duality of the inappropriateness of using the male gender term. The, and then, Luria again, the unique structure of what he called the cultural habit of behavior, and this you'll also find in the early work of Vygotsky, is that instead of directly applying its natural function to the solution of a particular task, the child puts between that function and the task a certain auxiliary means by the medium of which the child manages to perform the task. It's extremely awkward. The original isn't available, but the word medium at the bottom there is clearly referring to mediation. So you, and I tried to give you some idea of how that works because in the, the word mediation has become, is polysemic in the English language and has become also frozen in certain ways so that the basic phenomenological intuition underlying it is somehow lost in our ordinary use of it. But uh, we can speak easily of, oh, maybe I'm supposed to stay here because they're recording this. Right. But you, I just like, we can speak easily of something like uh, some event having a direct effect on somebody. Uh, and an equivalent way of saying that is that it has an immediate effect. Now, the opposite of a direct effect on somebody is an indirect effect. And what's the opposite of an immediate effect? Peculiarity of the English language? It's a mediated effect. So that's what generates this sort of, if you'll excuse the expression, Hegelian triangle, or it could be it's a... Uh, it's a Catholic triangle of some kind, right? So, but certainly, certainly something about thinking in threes that's important to this general tradition uh, in which you have a person in the world who's experiencing that world in a double way, simultaneously, directly, and indirectly. And I try to capture that idea, as I'll show you, by talking about the necessity of trying to resolve these two different worlds that we live in. Vygotsky liked to talk about mediators as tools and signs. And he makes a distinction which I myself have come to believe is premature and it, uh, I like to think that we can maybe get behind it a little bit and we'll see. But he talked about tools and signs and he would draw a mediator up here like activity and activity would go in two different directions. The tools function was directed outward at the world at the natural world. So the tool's function is to serve as the conductor of human influence on the object of activity. It is externally oriented. It must lead to changes in objects. It is a means by which a, human exter a human's external activity is aimed at mastering 
and triumphing over nature. Heaven help us all that he believed that and so did a lot of other people of his generation. And on the contrary, that signs are directed toward the mastery or control of behavioral processes, someone else's or one's own, just as technical means are directed toward the control of processes of nature. And this, we can get into this if you like afterward, but this of course assumes that another human being in some odd way is not an object of your activity. Now, one of the things about triangles, and in those of you who are adepts at this kind of discussion, is that some of my colleagues get beat upon rather mercilessly for putting up a triangle and somebody says, aha, there's no time in the triangle, where's history in all of this? So when I'm trying to get away from this basic structural relationship, uh, I like to put time into this as I do here, where I sort of think about a subject at time n acting on the world, uh, appropriating various aspects of the world to mediate their action on the world, and then having to resolve the discrepancy between the mediated and the direct. I'm going to get to the phylogenetic and the historical a little later when I do this. And so that, from my point of view, I'll often draw a circle over there and say, there's where human consciousness is in having to resolve the discrepancies of information that we're getting from these different sources. Like that. That was clever of me. I didn't know I did it that cleverly. Okay, so second foundational principle. That human psychology, this is Leontiev now, human psychology is concerned with activity of concrete individuals which takes place either in a collective, that is jointly with other people, or in a situation in which the subject deals directly with the surrounding world of objects, that is, at a potter's wheel or the writer's desk. I read this and I thought, I, I could really understand that. Um, I myself came across the notion of, and began to use the notion of activity by trying to understand why it was that kids in, in West Africa had difficulty learning mathematics, so I went to look at what people did. It turns out that this is a little bit misleading that a lot of time the term activity comes from German philosophy and in Leontiev's own work he did almost no research that, to which this paragraph could be applied. Third foundational principle is historical or generally speaking genetic inheritance. Genetic here is used in the sense of genesis or origins. This idea is implied by the notion of an artifact. I believe, an artifact being an aspect of the material world which is modified and incorporated into human action and exists later on because it apparently served those goals. Leontiev writes, internal psychological activities originate from practical activity, historically accumulated as a result of the education of man based on work in society. So the idea of history being intrinsic to human nature is just there. You can't avoid it. It's all over. Now, just to show you how ecumenical one can all be, um, this is John Dewey saying that we live from birth to death in a world of persons and things and where if you want to go back over this, I don't. you can read faster than I can talk or at least more clearly than I can talk and maybe more clearly than Dewey could write uh, that he's pointing directly at the same idea. Right, that we live in a world transformed by prior human activity and that's essential to our makeup. That there are sources outside of the individual which give rise to experience and he doesn't mean experience as something 
as something external. Uh, uh, just for those of you for whom this is a secret, I'll tell you that they were all reading Hegel at one time in their lives, as does some of the audience here. Okay, so a fourth foundational principle is practice as a crucible of theory. For quoting Vygotsky, I, you can, I'm just picking these out because they're nicely said, but a lot of people with the same ideas. Most complex contradictions of psychology's methodology are brought to the field of practice and can only be resolved there. Here the dispute stops being sterile. Of course, none of you have been engaged in sterile disputes in a building like this. It comes to an end. That is why practice transforms the whole of scientific methodology. And I think they actually believed it. I don't think this was just because some Bolshevik told them they had to say this. They were themselves Bolsheviks in their youth, and I think they believed it, even in their old age, those who lived so long. So then there are a couple of lemmas or things that follow from this, and there are other ideas, but one is the primacy of the social. And this can be very, very easily misunderstood uh, because if you take it in the short run, the primacy of the social looks like social reductionism and physiology and evolution have gone away. But I think the idea is pretty clear that because psychological development requires the active, remember Luria's statement about this sort of primal act of appropriating part of the world into your actions. Because psychological development requires the appropriation of the experience and products of prior generations and because the infant is born helpless and is cared for using the culturally accumulated experience of others, the social world is primarily specific in organizing for the very possibility of human development. So it's not, it's not doing either or. It's not doing nature versus nurture. None of that. Anyway, it can't do nature versus nurture, can it? Because it's a three-part system. It's not a two-part system. Okay, and then, of course, the idea that to understand behavior is to understand the history of behavior, which Vygotsky took from a guy that I think he died of natural causes named Pavel Blonsky. But where the idea, as it's come down to me, is that human nature must be understood as the emergent outcome of four streams of history. Jim Wirtz refers to this as four, maybe Vygotsky, four genetic domains. The problem is genesis is so, genetics is so easily misunderstood. But... Uh, that you have the cultural history of the social group, phylogeny, the history of our species, the ontogenetic or historical experience of each individual, and the microgenetic experience which you're currently undergoing trying to figure out what the hell it is that I'm trying to say. So you're interacting in microgenetic time, and all of these are happening simultaneously on different time scales, and if I had time to go into it by somewhat different principles. Consequently, as a methodological Necessity, you're going to have to study behavior over time. All psychology, all psychology, if you want to have psychology as a science, a metapsychology is cultural, historical, and developmental in this very general sense. Now, I don't actually spend a lot of time arguing with psychologists. I don't mind talking here in school, uh, in the Institute of Social Psychology, where you probably believe that culture has something to do with development. In my country, there are a lot of people who think you can study social psychology without ever studying a child. Ideally, studies should, should focus on two or more of these genetic domains, showing new properties that arise from their combination. Whereas, in, that's ideally. In practice, it takes a lot of expertise to be able to, have, to understand just studying one domain at a time. The problem, of course, is that you murder to dissect. So here's some early implementations of the ideas by the Russians. 
they ran a variety of, of genetic experiments that in principle combine the two psychologies by studying the basic forms of human activity, uh, the appropriation and use of culture. There were studies of mediated memory where you'd give people extra auxiliary stimuli to help them remember, mnemonic devices. Vygotsky liked to use the idea of tying a string around your finger to remember to get to the LSE on time. Uh, mediated attention, self-control. We learned to control ourselves from the outside. All using the method that they called the method of dual stimulation. You, got, you have to pick this auxiliary stimulus out and start to use it. And there were lots of examples. And if you don't know the examples, look them up. They're, fa they're all really fascinating. I, tru I truly recommend the autobiography of Alexander Luria, which has wonderful examples. Because Luria, Vygotsky did not live very long and wrote a hell of a lot and directed a lot of things. And he used to do experiments pour voir. But he didn't do experiments the way we think of experiments today. But he describes how he and Luria studied a Parkinsonian patient who couldn't walk across the floor until you put pieces of paper on the floor. They noticed he could walk upstairs, but he couldn't walk across the floor. And so you put pieces of paper and just say, well, count paper one, two, three, four, and the guy walks across the floor using a, a higher a, an auxiliary stimulus to do that. If you want to see a, a lovely appropriation of that idea in a film made from Oliver Sacks's uh, novel or novel. Oliver Sacks's uh, study awakening, in Awakenings, uh, there's a, the patient in Awakenings can't walk and he froze up until there's a, a set of squares, black and white squares, and he walks across the squares. I think I'm probably one of the two or three people in the entire world who noticed that scene when it came past me. Uh, there is a lot of study of the immersion of problem solving in play situations where Vygotsky talked about play as operating in this indirect fashion on people as his own proximal development. There were studies of ideal and uh, of identical and fraternal twins who were brought to a boarding school in Moscow uh, and raised together and apart. And very early, uh, Cyril Burt would have just absolutely loved all of that work had he known about it. Actually, he probably did know about it. It was published in English in 1938, first part of it. And then a lot of talk about Vygotsky blocks, which is really the study of concept formation, the importance of the use of words in the formation of concepts. Those are just kinds of examples. Now, this work was done in the 1920s, early 1930s. Um, Vygotsky died in 1934. Zdanov was killed in 35 or 34. Uh, there was, uh, in the school, they, they all moved to Kharkiv, Kharkiv in Ukraine. I think kind of to get out of the way, I've rec reclaimed some of this work from Ukrainian, in, back into, Ru the Russians are discovering it through English, which we published, uh, where I got it from the Ukrainian. But you began to have the domination of the notion of activity over the idea of mediation. An absurd dichotomy, but nonetheless in the ideological times in which it occurred, uh, you got people like Vygotsky accused of sinocentrism, which sounded an awful lot like idealism for which you got shot, which sounded, and of course the people who did that were called cosmopolitans, which was a very polite word for people standing on this podium. Uh, you then had the post-World War Pavlovian session. Somebody wrote to me from Australia today 
telling me that Oliver Sacks and the listener in 1973 said that Luria was a student that studied in Leningrad and was a student of Pavlov's who treated him like a son, which is a really incredible piece of fiction. Oliver got it completely confused. Um, Luria, as far as I know, that wasn't true, but Luria did have to say that Pavlov was the most important scientist walking ever or he would not have lived for him to be able to visit London in 1957. And then there was, of course, the infamous doctor's plot, which occurred right before Stalin died. Probably doctors did him in. Uh, and then there was the beginning, just the beginnings of a thaw. Following World War II, a number of the people who were involved before the war, were, who had st students of Vygotsky's who had lived through the war, uh, wrote really important influential monographs where they turned their work. It wasn't just Luria who did this. Others, Zaporozhia, Leontia, Velkonen, they all went into hospitals because they used the idea of dual stimulation as a way of remediating the functions of people who had lost a part of their brain or a part of their, or one of their fingers or whatever. And they, there was a practical use of their science which went back to that Parkinsonian patient that they had seen in the 1920s. And they, of course, during the war, uh, they stopped killing people like this for a while and uh, put them to work. They let the Germans do the killing for them. And in the 1950s, this is, of course, in between, from 1936, even before, all books with Vygotsky's picture in it were, the picture was cut out. If you were a really stupid dissident, you would have a picture of Vygotsky on your wall somewhere where somebody was not likely to see it. Uh, but there are a lot of books that you could find in what was then called the Lenin Library, which must be called something else now, uh, with the front pieces cut out. And the, if you look at the number of copies of uh, Vygotsky's collected works a la 1956 and 1960, they would order on the number of 1,200, maybe. How many of those came into people? I actually have... Luria's copy of one of the books. Uh, very rare. If you, go to the, if you go to Russia today and you leave and you go to Tver or you go to Khabarovsk and you ask, tell us, tell us about the work of Vygotsky. I will buy a bottle of vodka for every one of you who does that and has anybody explained to you who Lev Vygotsky was today, not just then. Right. So, that, that this was the biggest school in Russian psychology and so on is a myth that Luria created in order that the school could survive, which it has. Um, then, of course, Stalin's death led to gradual but incomplete recovery of the socio-historical school. I'm giving you a little history here because that was what I was thinking about. Uh, there's a post-Stalinist revival. Luria becomes active. He comes here. He, when he was here, he lectured on mental retardation. Neil O'Connor brought him here. He also was friends with people who were working in restoration of functions. Um, and 1962, the year that I went to the Soviet Union and had the pleasure of watching American rockets pointed at me while Russian rockets were pointed at my house in Los Angeles, uh, Vygotsky's Thought and Language was public, published with a brilliant introduction by Jerome Bruner but a very expurgated version of it. All the Marxist bullshit was cut out of it. Um, and uh, it, it, But it, it, it got a little attention, but it didn't, just a little attention. And it was, I think, pretty 
pretty, if not entirely forgotten, it didn't, it didn't start a movement. Uh, but is remembered today for his controversy with Piaget over egocentric speech. Piaget actually published a little uh, response to it that in some versions of the MIT first edition you can get a, 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 I can only think of the Russian term. It's a, it's a, it's a, rare, it's a rare bibliographic uh, uh, publication, but you can find it. Piaget's comments on how he wished he'd had a chance to talk with Vygotsky and how much they agreed with each other. Uh, so, but I said, but however, the impression of an influential line of thought belied the reality on the ground. And I think a lot of people I talk to think, oh, this is the most important school of Russian psychology. And so, that's not true. 1966, there was an international congress of psychology in Moscow. I call it the first huzzah for Russian psychology, because in organi- I was there as an organizer in a deal that I cut with Luria, so I could learn about what he'd done in Central Asia. Uh, and uh, it was the first huzzah for Russian psychology, which was separated for the first time in 1966 from philosophy. And now psychology, I don't think everywhere in the world has been separated from philosophy faculties, but it was in 1966 as a result of having the International Congress of Psychology there. Lurie and the others who organized it knew damn good and well what they were doing. But it was the last huzzah for the Vygotskians. Because when psychology went into the Institute of Psych- and went into the R- Russian Academy of Sciences, all of the Vygotskians were removed into institutes in lesser positions with people who were blind and deaf or mentally retarded or under the age of five. So Western interest. I think there's a resurgence of interest in this idea of the Russian culture. I'm trying to remember this school, right? Uh, Resurgence of interest in culture is a central feature of human nature associated in general with independence movements around the world, mass education, and various UNESCO initiatives. Many people from the United Kingdom participated in that. Often this took the form of cross-cultural research. And there was a focus on Vygotsky and Luria that began, but it came mostly from Western Europe, the United States, and then Japan, and was not indigenous. Russia. Northern European Marxist activists took a lot of interest, but mostly in the work. This is still, we still now have a Cold War. There's still a Berlin Wall, but took really an interest in the work of Leontiev and the notion of activity. Uh, and the Russians themselves are in a position where they cannot follow through on their own research program. Biology in Russia was in tatters as a result of Lysenko and ideological reasons, and there was very limited influence in any other domain within Russian psychology. Now there starts this internationalism. And with with internationalism, the Russians are somewhat bitter about this. Uh, They feel that they've been misunderstood, and I'm sure that they have. Sandra, in her really interesting book, talks about Moscovici's ideas about psychoanalysis and is how they move. They get re-represented and, of course, not correctly represented from the point of view of the people who represented them originally, and that's what we see with respect to these ideas. But some continue. I just broke, I broke this out. Some continue to follow a version of Vygotsky's emphasis on mediation, Jim Wirch with mediated action in context. That's a very central idea. Some develop Leontiev's ideas about activity while retaining the centrality of mediation. This is Uriah Engstrom, Finn's activity approach. 
Some pursue historical change in cross-cultural work following what Luria had done and others. I did that for a while. Some conduct research in institutionalized settings focusing on what they call communities of practice, communities of learners. And there are new developments in genetics and brain research which open up possibilities for serious intergenetic domain research. And all of this sort of occurs with the internationalization of this. So I, me, I just, I pursued one of these. Uh, I, we call it cultural historical activity theory. So, I mean, the basic idea of this is that the notion that you're going to separate activity from mediation was caused not by any deep intellectual commitment, but by the, the desire of the people involved to stay alive, uh, that uh, they did not seriously disagree with each other about fundamental matters. Uh, and the current aim of this approach, in my hands, is to try to test the viability of this original vision of a unified scholarly discipline. Perhaps it's psychology. Perhaps it's a new integrative discipline of some kind. There are conceptual reformulations of a variety of kinds that are needed if you're going to do that. So a couple that are important to me. One is trying to reconceptualize the notion of culture, that in place of tool and sign, I like to put artifact, an aspect of the material world that's been modified over the history of its incorporation into goal-directed human action, Artifacts are simultaneously ideal and material so that the division between the ideal and the material is not primal in human life. It's secondary. It's a result of analysis. That artifacts emerge in the process of goal-directed human actions so that their ideal and that their material form has been shaped by their participation in the successful and material actions or interactions of which they were previously a part and which they mediate in the present. And I discovered this idea teaching undergraduates communication about 15 years ago and then learned that Ival Ilyankov, a Russian philosopher, had thought of it before. And so I went and got drunk at Ival Ilyankov and had a great time. It's very interesting to, we were talking about this before, when you have this great insight and somebody a lot smarter and better educated than you had it before you did, so you think there might be something to it. And then I like, the, I like this statement about culture, which I think is also important by Ed Hutchins. Trained as an anthropologist at UCSD, one of the world's major cognitive scientists today, culture is a process, a cognitive process, that takes place both inside and outside people's heads. The quotes, things that appear, uh, that, that appear, uh, oh, I got the script, that appear on definitions of culture, on, on thing-like definitions of culture, I should say, are residua of this process which accumulates partially solved solutions of frequently encountered problems. And I'll fix that up before we get it up on some sort of thing and get the right quote. Then you have to reformulate what activity is about. And Leontiev tried to do that. Um, we have this first one about how it's like the practical world of people, whether they're there or not. It's like what real, it's like giving a talk at the LSE, you know. Then he went into a little more sort of philosophical thing where he tried to get at the relationship between actions, which was the normal unit of analysis for psychologists, activity, which was the supra category, and operations, which were not goal, any more goal-directed, but were helping fulfill actions and which could be turned into machine-like functions. Uh, and Leontiev can be seen as underplaying mediation and actual research did not reach there. It was a programmatic thing. 
And then we get my colleague Uriah Engstrom's way of trying to talk about this. And I'll get to, I'll, in fact, I'll just sort of do this. Some of you have seen this sort of triangle. Uh, now, how the hell do I go backwards on this? I'm stuck. There must be a way to go backwards. I got so clever I went forwards. Okay. Very few people recognize the origin of this sort of expanded way of trying to include everything that Engstrom has developed. And here's his original thing. He said, well, pre-humans, there's individual members of the species. There's trying to make a trying to make your way in the natural environment and your, your community. And these are relatively unmediated interactions. And that in the process of hominization, there are ruptures along all three of the parts of this kind of universal human or universal organic triangle, living animal triangle. That between individual members of the species and the natural environment, you get artifacts. Between individuals and the society, you get rules. And between the population and its, its attempts to achieve things uh, together in order to make a living, you get a division of labor. And out of that then grows this kind of expanded triangle which provides an umbrella framework for comprehensive research program in which different people focus on different parts of the whole. So we now have this sociocultural research. We have a variety of people who are working at issues that take one or another perspective take part of this whole entire thing and try and work on it. I don't have a lot of time, but I want to get across a couple of major ideas. The long quote at the beginning of this, many of you will be familiar with. It's a statement by Clifford Geertz that human beings need culture in order to, for their brains to develop normally. Right? That culture is not an add-on. It's intrinsic to the development of the human brain. I believe that this part, I'm just going to run through the sort of four parts to say, is this plausible for today? And I'm going to say yes to this. That research on hominization shows a two-way causal connection. That biological change, for example, bipedalism, never mind the growth of the brain, the growth of the opposable thumb and so on, faster running leads to getting more protein, leads to a bigger brain, leads to better tools, leads to more protein, which leads to a bigger brain and various kinds of morphological changes and such that this becomes common wisdom and even somebody working in London like Professor Plotkin could say that biology and cultural evolution relate to each other as two-way streets of causal interactions. Or Merlin Donald in the Dominion of Canada can say Culture actually configures the complex symbolic systems needed to support it by engineering the functional capture of the brain for epigenesis. Or, from my own campus, a neuro, computational neurobiologist named Terry Sinowski and a student can say culture contains part of the developmental program that works with genes to build the brain that underlies who you are. And they can coin the term cultural biology as a new frontier of science and get millions of dollars a year to study it. And sort of my way of trying to picture this whole thing is that it is a tangled web, as Geertz claimed it to be. What about cultural historical change? Let's just look at that domain. We're going to go through the poor domain. So early work by Luria replicated repeatedly. I've replicated it. Others have replicated it is that cultural historical change leads to cognitive change. 
and that in particular the move from working in traditional non-literate societies with low levels of technology leads to the development of practical but not theoretical intelligence. His most famous example and the one that allowed me to remember it was uh, all the bears in Siberia are white. You asked this of a peasant who has to give the answer. All the bears in Siberia are white. My friend Ivan went to Siberia and saw a bear. What color was it? To which the person responds, how should I know what color the bear is? Ivan is your friend. Ask him what color. I've never been to Siberia. Now that's very replicable kind of finding. The issue is what does it mean? Does it mean that these people really can't think theoretically? That's what Luria believed. I don't believe that. Uh, and that's a whole other series of lectures is to get into the you know, specifics of that. There's, theory, there's a series and there's a lot of work on literacy and schooling. Vygotsky believed that if you became literate, you mastered a double symbol system, that writing was the abstraction of an abstraction, and clearly it increased the power of higher psychological functions. My own research and that of Sylvia Scribner and others says what was happening was that it was mediation through a graphic system, but in particular forms of discourse, in particular forms of activity in school, and that it's not general. The illusion that is general is an illusion. Then there, there's a lot of interesting research, which I'll just name. Uh, Patricia Greenfield has done great work in weaving in Zinacantan in central Mexico, uh, where the weave, the, as agricultural people got invaded by people who built roads and exploited them for their natural resources, their weaving patterns changed, and so did their modes of teaching and so on. Uh, interesting work by King Beach, Naoki Ueno. We're now getting international research in Nepal on the advent of commercial farming in which the number system changes and the practices around enumeration change very rapidly. And Jeff Sachs and work on in New Guinea, which is famous because among the Aksapmen who have 20, a base 27 counting system that goes across the body, but no practices associated with arithmetic, that when the money changes, when schooling begins, people begin to solve problems differently as, and as I write, as mediational means and the structure of activity become more complex, so do forms of thought. And we're left with this question, but is it general or not? And this is another example from that of, of other work in, in Ivory Coast with two groups of people, similar in all sorts of ways, except one group in, not only engages in indigenous farming, but they run stores and their kids run stores and they're better at a variety of arithmetic problems than the kids who live in the other tribe where it looks exactly the same, same language, family. But if all the kids go to school, they all look alike. Now that really speaks to something. Schooling is not there 10,000 years ago as we know it, and it's not there even today in a lot of parts of the world. It's clearly a cultural, historical form of activity, and it does lead to changes in the way people think in some circumstances. Now I want to end, I guess, by... Uh, talking about something which a lot of you know about, you know, the fact, well, a lot of you know about it. I'm just going to pick the example of number, and that is the way in which, because remember at the beginning I said that it wasn't like first you have phylogeny, and then you add cultural history, and then you add ontogeny, and then you add microgenesis. They're all there simultaneously. That means they're interacting in a nonlinear fashion, and that's a longer discussion as to, and I'm serious about the nonlinearity of that. But let's talk about phylogenetic contributions in ontogeny, and I'm picking the case of number for which there just happens to be a, a lot of evidence. So in early primate evolution, and probably earlier, 
and in early infancy, the building blocks, let's call them, for representation of number present. So in the United States, Karen Wynn does work on infant arithmetic. The details aren't important, but you, you, you work on infants' ability to show surprise. You put one doll behind the screen. You put another doll behind the screen. You lift the screen, and if there's only, like, one thing there, the kid goes, what? Or if you, you pull something away and there's still two things there, the kid goes, what? So it looks like even even newborns, like maybe what's called a very odd term, innate, but maybe it's, it's certainly there very early. It's awfully hard with a four-month-old infant to know when they're awake and when they're asleep, whether or not they're surprised, but so there's noise in those data too. But they act like they know what is there. And I actually believe this line of research, that there are something that you might call skeletal constraints, which are a part of our phylogenetic history. And the extent to which they develop does depend upon cultural history, ontogeny, and microgenesis. So I take the position that a skeletal principles, let's call that phylogeny, plus cultural practices. So and just running, just I've really gone over that, that is, there's a lot of evidence that infants can do this. There's a lot of evidence that chimpanzees can do simple numeration. But there's also a lot of evidence that people who have not attended school cannot do very complicated arithmetic. They can only do very simple forms of arithmetic with very small numbers. And currently, there's a huge debate. If you haven't read about it, you really ought to. There's a great article in the New York Times summarizing the work of Professor Everett and his detractors. I think these people are called the Petahee, although how you can get the Petahee out of that, I don't know. Peter Gordon here in the UK has done work on their representation of number, but it's one of those famous societies in the world whose number system presumably consists of one, two, and many, or one, a few, and many. People argue about that. Um, but there certainly is an absence of cultural practices where, that anybody has, people who've lived there 15, 20 years have never seen anything where number is used. They display the elementary arithmetic abilities for small arrays, but their performance quickly deteriorates. These are adults with larger numbers. The children there who learn Portuguese number words and cultural practice don't display the same limitations as the adults. And this again says that with changes in cultural historical practices, you can get changes in manifested abilities. I don't know, that's, that slide somehow slipped in out of order, but it makes at least repeats the point that I made earlier. Now, there's another really interesting example of culture becoming mental, which has to do with arithmetic, and that has to do with the cultural practice of using the abacus in Japan. The work, this work is by a number of people. One of them is my colleague, Gil Hitana, who died last year. But the basic facts are that people, they, even though you don't need to have an abacus in Japan anymore, a lot of kids go to school, after school, so-called cram schools, juku, and become expert abacus users. There's just, you know, the British are in, and the Indians and Trinidadians are hung up on cricket. Well, it turns out that besides baseball, a lot of Japanese are hung up on being good at the abacus. So there's a national abacus competition every year, and there are all these grades, and people get a lot of respect for knowing a lot about the abacus. So an abacus master can calculate accurately and even faster accurately. And when I say calculate, I mean, well, let me see, I'm afraid to go to the next slide. I mean large numbers. Start adding up large, you know, 10-digit numbers. They can calculate them accurately and even faster accurately if, they're, if the, the abacus isn't in front of them. That is, they can sit right here. You do 
All the parts of the stuff have been verified by contemporary research, including interactions among them, including phylogeny, culturally organized experience, changes the way the brains work. And if all of you don't know about the cerebella of London cab drivers, you should go find out. They're bigger than yours. And also not by accident, it appears. Driving a cab in London meaning that you have mastered the knowledge and that you've lived long enough to have your brain tested. The present fashionable term for this enterprise, which I came across recently, is biocultural co-constructivism. I love that word. It's a great PR word. Um, and uh, I think that's kind of what I'm talking about. What's missing from this, this view? And here I go into the issue of theory and practice, which I've kind of skipped over. But there are a lot of programs in the world today that are following these principles and that are practice-based approaches where they actually think the practice is developing the theory. At least they have the illusion that it is. One is the group that Uri Engström is still leader of, the developmental work research tradition in Finland, deliberately uses a method of dual stimulation for the redesign of work settings in which the workers are the agents of their own changes, which is a hell of a thing to do. And you couldn't do it in the United States, but then we have advanced capitalism over there. My laboratory uses a combination of principles for design of alternative educational practices outside of school, which transform and uh, help the kids who participate in them and transform the lives of the undergraduates who participate in them, and which I'll more or less go to the mat with you about is a very good application of theory and practice. Uh, we can put that off as well. There are many groups using principles for redesign of education in schools and the integration of new mediational means like computers and education. And I am sorry to say there is a new journal called Mind, Brain, and Education, which you can subscribe to uh, from Guilford Press at any time you like by going on the net and looking it up. So you all know about the rush to try to put fMRIs on little kids' brains while hooking them up to computers in order to make them generally smarter through education. Uh, I take this to be also applications of this theory and practice, although they don't approve of the practice often, and I don't often like the theoretical rationale. And then finally, I'm currently engaged in, in research with children in Brazil who are born with perinatal stroke, seriously disabled at birth, and studying the reorganization of their brains uh, through special programs of research, which are modeled in part on the way in which I organized research uh, for kids in my own neighborhoods around uh, San Diego. So I think I can make a fair claim that all of the basic principles of this point of view have been followed. I think the evidence is in favor of it. And I think it, it beats the hell out of working for a living to do this kind of work. Is it a form of psychology? It appears kind of close to recombination of the old human sciences and a re reintegration of biology and cultural history. It does require a wide range of methods that cut across psychology, anthropology, linguistics, sociology, and the, and the neurosciences. It appears to require the creation of new forms of scientific work activity in new institutions or networks of institutions. But to date, few of these kinds of institutions have come into being. And I'm gonna end on this note on Saturday those of you who have not been totally put off by what I'm talking about here are going to hear me talk about the same thing in a different way for graduate students and undergraduates who are thinking about going into professional life in this general area. And I will end by trying to talk about the new forms of inter 
<clears throat> excuse me, of international collaboration of virtual institutions which must be created if this line of research and its potential are going to be realized and we don't end up with a form of Thatcherist uh, control, Bush-eyed fascist, I don't care what you call it, but a kind of command and capitalist command and control version of raising our children to become robots in an economy which is eating us out of our house and our home. That being the English version of the Greek word ecology. Thank you. Now, I myself would never, ever stay at work this late to hear a talk. Uh, it's approaching my bedtime, even London time. Uh, but I'm, I'm very happy to, if there are things you'd like to talk about or things, you know, issues you'd like to raise and so on, I can stay. It's only uh, lunchtime, my time, so I'm in great shape, and I can stand here longer than you can probably sit there. Sir, back there. I don't, yes, please. Sorry, I don't know name. Tell me your name and... Thank you very much. Yes, I am your layman that you were talking about. Uh, and, but I have a question that I think you might be able to uh, give yeah. me some help on. And that is this, that the do authoritarian cultures influence the growth of mind, in, in terms of thinking ability, the creativity of mind. Uh, yes, the authoritarian culture... Cult, it's, it's a good question. I, I got the question. Right, so the, the question, if anybody didn't hear, do authoritarian cultures affect the way people's minds work? Yes. 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 I think the bad news is that the answer is yes, and I think it is the good news is that such systems imagined perfectly, absolutely perfectly, by George Orwell in... 1980, in 1948 and 1984, right, fail. The Soviet Union failed because it had a top-down command economy and a command form of life which could not survive. It was inhuman. People cannot live under that level of control. And you will see the same of the children in Japanese schools. When I first went to Japan in the 1980s, the Japanese schools were very well behaved. We could not, the people who did this research, could not code for children being out of their seat. I'm not sure about schools here in London. I hope sometimes children are out of their seats. I saw some over in the, in the, in the museum today, so I figured they let them out of their the French kids are all over the museum. So I think the top, that top-down control, in fact, does not work. Total control doesn't work. And uh, the problem is that the will to that kind of power can be very effective. So I would simply refer you to uh, George Orwell's book and to think seriously about it. That's where I start my undergraduate curriculum. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Hi, my name is Yes. Um, I would like to ask. Uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you. If uh, if there is uh, uh, if, if there is some room for emotions and affects in cultural and historical activity theory. Well, I've not displayed any in the room so far today. So let's see. <laughs> um, I, I think that there's a. Uh, I wrote a book called Cultural Psychology, 
And there's an odd thing about this book. It was criticized by my friend, my Japanese friend, Gail Hatano, is that there was too little bit of, about emotion in the book. And uh, he's almost right. It depends on how you read the book. People get tired reading the book because it, it, the book sort of goes through history and then it does various things. And it ends up talking about this magical world that I create where I work with children and undergraduates. And I said about this world, well, I haven't said a lot about it, but that's what I do every day, unless I'm in London lecturing with you guys. Uh, and uh, when my undergraduates describe this world, and when I describe it in the book, I cannot describe it without emotion and, and caring, being a part of the description. But when I have to turn it into numbers and report it, cognition and emotion have been split apart. So at the end of his book on thinking and speech or thought and language, Vygotsky comes back to the issue of emotion to say that all thought grows out of emotion and that just as I said before, I was talking about the analytic distinction between tools and signs. So we make an analytic distinction between emotion and thought. But there is no thought without emotion. And we know from enormous amount of research on the development of emotion in children that all of the development of emotion is intertwined with the development of thought and the assessment of the consequences of action. So it's an adequacy of my ability as a scientist to be able to talk in both of those kinds of languages at the same time. It's not characteristic of reality, just the unreality of the podium that I'm standing on and the medium in which I work, which is written language. Sir, I don't. You have the advantage of my not knowing your, of my knowing my name, and I don't know yours. Yeah, my name is uh, Jeff Evans. Hi, Jeff. Hi. Um, you talked about adopting methods from a range of disciplines. Yes. Uh, I'm interested in um, a related question, which is you bringing together, if possible, and I'm wondering if what you think of the possibility of concepts that seem to be close. Yes. I'm, I'm thinking, for example, of activity. On the one hand, in concept, you might find a discourse in discursive psychology. Yes. Is there any future? Yeah, there obviously. Well, uh, there are people like um, let's see, Ken Gergen, who also has reviewed my. I mean, I'm uh, an old colleague of mine is David Middleton, and I'm familiar with the work, a lot of the work in discurs discursive psychology, and a variety of names that that go with that. I think that there is a close relationship between these perspectives. Um, they, they are different in some ways that I myself am still trying to explore. Discursive psychology, for one thing, is not in principle developmental. And I, it, doesn't, it doesn't emphasize in the way in which I do the transformation of behavior over time. I think that's important. Uh, so um, it, it, uh, clearly discourse, and, and it's a question of whose notion of discourse. So if it's Foucault's dis notion of discourse, then everything is power, and here we are doing power on each other. We do need further analytic categories. And it's not that it's wrong that everything is power, right? But um, it's all life. So we do. So, yeah, I think that these are, remember I referred to, before to communities of practice, which is an idea that really comes out of a critique of anthropology and psychology. This is a plague on both of your houses, puts practice in it. I guess, and community at the front. Um, I think that's a part of, of a, f a family of theories 
the uh, former uh, professor of psychology at Harvard University, Sheldon White, uh, who wrote with Emily Kahane on the history of psychology, talked about a first psychology and a second psychology. I think that, the, that what we're talking about, all of what we're talking about here is kind of a second psychology. I don't want to let go of the physiological. I don't want to let go of evolution. I don't want to let go of the physiology. I think that's a principled mistake. Those people who still believe that human beings have pulled free of their phylogeny are dangerous. It's a reduction to history. Stalin told us what a reduction to history is all about. On the other hand, and his idea of history, his claims for the future. So um, I guess I like this mixed mode way. I do think it causes problems when you mix methods. Sandra's husband, I'm told, is in a department or something of methodology. I like the, the, the European word methodology. I like it because I think of something like a, a theory of the combination of methods that mediate between theory and your claims about reality, or theory and practice in my case. I think the only thing we know for sure is we're wrong in the long run. Uh, so critical activity of some kind is, is necessary, and change is the only constant. There are all these bromides that as a young person you think are such a pile, you know, you're really tired of them. And then you realize, my God, they're true. Then what? So I'm working with the then what face. In the back of the room, there's a question. Yes, I'm sorry. Yes. I'm sorry if I missed somebody up here. Richard Rawls. Yes. Um, how do you explain the paradox between the collapse of the authoritarian Soviet Union and its basic philosophy, which is really dialectical materialism, which seems to interpenetrate your work? Dialectical materialism taken in a creative way, which seems to underline lots of your hypotheses. Well, I guess it depends. Thank you very much for your comment. I, I guess it depends on your your uh, your uh, opinion of Joseph Stalin as a dialectical materialist in the form of diamat that they taught in the Soviet Union when it became a mode of state power. I think that the ideas come much better from the notebooks of 1844 than they come from the notebooks of Lenin and Stalin. Um, I was in the Soviet Union at the time of its demise over a period of approximately, I watched its demise, uh, and, and, and uh, in my idiotic way participated in its demise. I would bring copies of Alexander Luria's book, which was never published in the Soviet Union, to Moscow with me and hand it out to people uh, and ask them why it hadn't appeared, which it did. I paid for it. It appeared about three years ago. Uh, so I think that the really big break in Soviet society, uh, if you'll, I'm not a technological, I'm a professor of communication, but not a technological determinist, but the tape recorder was the most incredibly subversive device. So you could mass produce the poems of the Russian poets of the 1960s, and they echoed across the courtyards of Moscow University. And there wasn't a damn thing anybody could do about it. There wasn't any, uh, just... Nobody knew which room it was coming from. Um, it, it showed itself in the 1980s when only certain people could get the keys to the Xerox machine and there was no paper and no ink for the damn thing anyway. It just didn't work. So I actually, and part of my answer is the answer I gave to this other gentleman. I do not believe that human beings can live under conditions of total control and that such a society will fall. A lot of blood may be spilled in the meantime. That this is a contemporary comment. There was a question down here, I believe. Yes. Then. Thank you. Um, 
I'm very much uh, in favor of the project of a, a unified psychology, if I can call it that, and yes. I think it'll work. Um, but when you talked about what was needed to reconceptualize it, you talked about dissolving the analytic distinction between tools and signs in favor of one, in favor of a, a unified category of mm -hmm. artifacts. Now, I wonder whether that will really work because if you take a long view of the history of our species, one of the things that stands out is that although there has been tool use for hundreds of thousands, possibly millions of years, mm. one of the crucial changes in, in human society seemed to come about with the development of lit literacy, which, you know, as we know, is only about 5,000 years old. Mm -hmm. So it seems to me that, that one should retain a distinction between um, tools and artifacts of various kinds on the one hand and these symbolic artifacts yes. of signs on yes. the other. Thank you. I appreciate the comment. First of all, you're just drawing the line where you want to draw the line. I mean, um, the first thing I'd say is if I had to draw that line, I would have drawn it 40,000 years in the caves of Lascaux. I would not have drawn it there. Uh, but I wouldn't probably want to draw the line there, and I would just invite you, as I am doing as an amateur, to go and read what people are finding out about what was there. I don't believe that, for example, right now I am engaged in, in trafficking in artifacts with you through artifacts. But if I even step aside and just do it this way, every natural language is built on a system of artifacts. And it's both material and ideal. And what you have to ask yourself is the question, where, what is, it's almost like McLuhan's idea of ratio of the senses or Kenneth Burke or somebody like that. I don't like to get into that because it invites premature quantification, which non-premature quantification is fine. But you've got to know where it comes from. All quantitative data start with qualitative phenomena. So uh, with respect to uh, this question of the material and the ideal, my way, my students have a lot of difficulty understanding what I'm talking about by language being material, right? Because after all, I'm just saying I'm speaking, not the king's, or, excuse me, the queen's English, but you know, that bastardized form of English that grew up in California. So, uh, you know, what's the ideal part? We're exchanging ideas here. Только когда я начинаю говорить по-русски. Right. Yeah. So, the, where did the, where where did the where did the ideality go? When I changed the packaging of the possibilities of the, of the speech stream of the human, you have a little bit of common history mediating your action in the world through a sound system that happens to come from over there. Some other people actually know know that language a lot better than I do. But where did the where did the where did the ideality go? The materiality remained. So the idea that oral language is a dual system, very hard to, very hard to keep in mind. I do think that there, uh, my colleague Roy Dandrati has this wonderful phrase that a table is just an idea reified in a different medium. So I think that it's this, you have to take a, something like a relativist point of view here. This table is solid relative to me. Only relative to me. Give me an electron microscope and I will demonstrate to you beyond a shadow of your doubt that that is all open space with a few little whirly gigs in it. 
if I change my relationship. So um, I, I think it is the human thing to make distinctions. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure if it's good or bad. Right? Those distinctions in the last 280 years, starting here in this very country, have uh, gotten us into what I take to be a very big pickle for, the, for, for humanity. So I'm, I think it's a good discussion. I do think that the written language does change the way the mind works when you're using it, it's there, and to the extent that it's appropriate for the circumstances you're in and you've internalized it. Milan Kund, you'll excuse me, this is an impolite, this is, I'm quoting somebody else, this is not me speaking here. I'm not going to take responsibility for this, but I do recommend to you the work of the Czech intellectual, Milan Kundera, who wrote a book called The Book of Laughter and Forgetting. And in the early scene of The Book of Laughter and Forgetting, this is a quotation, uh, the hero goes to visit his ex-girlfriend who has a series of letters which he's afraid may incriminate him. And he's thinking about that, and he's going to see her, and remembering the last time he saw her, and feeling great dissatisfaction because she remembers that she told him that he made love like an intellectual. That's an example, right, of making a if it's true, <laughs> which I doubt of Kandera actually. Uh, uh, if it were true, it would be uh, a kind of a stereotype of the intellectual as having no rhythm and so on and so forth, and an overgeneralizing and overvalorizing transfer of the ability to read and write. Mike, you're doing a yeah. great job chairing yourself, but I will interrupt. Yes, I'm sorry. To say that we'll take perhaps one more question and then stop. Right. And tomorrow, I mean, if you really are interested in this discussion, I'm, I, I'll will be around continue. to talk in the morning. Yes. Yes. Right, I, I'm Shirley Franklin, and yes. I'm interested in, in sort of tying up the idea with material in terms of the ideas with practice. I'm really concerned about the direction that education's taking and how these sort of exciting ideas that you've talked about yeah. can influence practice and education. I mean, interestingly, at the end of Blair's 10 years when he came in and said, education, 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 and actually class sizes haven't changed, what actually has changed is that we've got a lot more technology in classes. We've got lots of gizmos. We've got lots of skillsy stuff going on. It, it's all very flash but it's completely crap in terms of learning. You know, I've been into a lot of classrooms recently, and it looks really snazzy. But you talk to teachers, and there's all this stuff on phonics, you know, great little games with helicopters flying along, you know, can we drop the, the right letter into the word? And nothing to do with meanings and, and language and, and, and things like that. And so we've, we live in this skills-based society. Um, we've got academics here, and we've got teachers there. We've got teacher education that doesn't even include learning and theories of learning. We do actually have learning styles, of course, which, you know, where we label kids as being kinesthetic or, or visual or whatever it is. But there's just no joined-up practice. And I, 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 A, we need to change that. Um, and, I'm, and B, I expect you have the same in America. Am I right in thinking? Or well, you're starting up a whole, you know, uh, we're only supposed to take one more well, question. Uh, I'm concerned that we do make... Uh, yes, I, I, I totally agree. I, I, of course, you, you know, I think you know ahead of time that, that I agree with you that um, it, the, whole, the whole issue about activity and mediation is creating a system that is creative and has a future, right? And I, I have to say, I was, I was walking down... I'm repeating stuff because I was talking with Sandra. I'm living... 
I am reading right now Little Dorrit. I was thinking about Bleak House. I'm living a few doors away of, well, of course, you have the Curiosity Shop here and just a few doors away from where Dickens lived toward the end of his life. And uh, thinking about the Department of Circumlocution, which somehow Orwell passed. I didn't, I'm not quite clear. But I, I think that these problems have been around for a long time. I don't think they're new. I think that, uh, unfortunately, in this case, the people of the United Kingdom are following the people of the United States. At various other times, for example, the Lancaster method, we were following you, and I don't think we were any better off for that. So I think there are very, very deep problems with humanity's understanding of what education is about, and we don't like the unruly young, and we don't have enough productive activity for them to do. I believe that failure has been for the last $5,000, 5,000 years, $5,000 is only worth 2,500 pounds, uh, for the last 5,000 years, that the kind of thing that is bothering you and failure have been constitutive of the process of education. Yet no school of education can take as problematic that what it's trying to do could be a social disaster. And the prime minister, neither the prime minister of Great Britain, nor the President of the United States, nor I am sad to say, whatever the guy in Russia calls himself or anybody else is going to stand up and say, we need something so drastically different and we have no idea of how to bring it about. And I, I want to go back to another comment. I do not stand here favoring a unified psychology. If there were a psychology, which I'm not sure I would be in favor of, uh, I guess I'd like it to be unified, but I'm not sure the psychology and the way it came about in the 19th and early 20th century is a science we really want to deal with. And we have to think, we have to think about new forms of human life. We have to, if I were to go back to Engstrom's triangle, we have to think that every society has to have production, communication, and exchange. That's just, you just have to have it. But we're consuming ourselves out of house and home. The people who put production in front of consumption where their placard art was all about production, they're gone. Right? So I agree with you. I think 99% of the stuff I see with computers is really great for the companies that are selling computers. I think that the push out of computer technology into cell phones is very, very interesting. I've seen forms of activity created in that way which I celebrate in little tiny spots and smidges. And for the great Masses of people, they are being prepared to work in a skills-based economy, and they're not going to be running that skills-based economy. And whatever the problems with dialectical materialism, and there are plenty of them, and there were ever the problems with the Soviet Union, which was a world disaster, world-class disaster, right? it's simply the case that we're going to have to find some way to bring consumption and production in line with each other and exchange, or we're going to blow the world apart. That's all. And if there's anybody that would please convince me otherwise, you know, I, I would feel better about things. I mean, I don't, I'm not an optimist here. And I don't, think this is an, I don't think this is a new insight. There were these old people who wrote about the possibility of human beings getting through the needle's eye. We haven't made it yet, and we're not doing, we're overweight. We're overweight. Well... I think it's, it's eight o'clock, so we stop.
Can I just say, uh, before we all thank Michael Cole, um, how wonderful his uh, lecture was tonight. And what comes to my mind is the words of Luria, his teacher, our teacher. Alexander Luria wrote, I think in his memoirs, that when he thought about what psychology could be, he wanted to think of a psychology that was connected to life psychology that could say something about human life, and I think we have an example of what that can be uh, tonight. So thank you very much, Mike. Thank you all for your patience.